Al Jazeera podcast. Two more coups in Africa during the past year. That brings to nine the number of governments ousted on the continent since 2020. Are there common factors or are these isolated takeovers? And what could we see in the coming year? I'm Laura Kyle, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests now. And in London, Alexis Akwajiram, managing editor at the news website Semaphore Africa. In Abuja is Kabir Adamu, managing director at Beacon Consulting, that's a security risk management and intelligence provider in Nigeria and the Sahel region. And in Bamako, Mali, is Musa Kondo, executive director of the Sahel Institute. He's also formerly served as special advisor to the current interim president of Mali, Asimi Goita. Very warm welcome to all of you. Kabir, let's start with why we have seen so many successful coups in this region in the past year. Are there any common threads that we can pull out here? Um, thank you, um, Laura. Uh, the common tre- trends are uh, the socio-economic challenges that most African countries are, are facing. Um, some of the geopolitical developments that have created, um, unfortunately, what uh, some of us have described as the perfect storm in most um, African countries. And uh, if you add that to the effect of climate change, uh, especially in Sahelian countries, then you find that the socioeconomic conditions in those countries um, would make it very easy and uh, vulnerable, as it were, for any military class that would want to um, truncate a democratic governance in in those countries. So the reasons that have been cited for those who advance those coup d'etat include, for instance, insecurity. Um, Mm. It includes issues around the economy. It also includes issues around um, sometimes, like in the case of Niger, um, corruption. And um, added to that, unfortunately, the geopolitical element where we've seen um, countries like Russia, uh, the United States, and then to an extent China, also uh, having some influence within most of these this countries. And so it's become like a uh, playground, a, mm. a, a tough war between between all of these countries. So these are some of the common trends that cuts across. But in all okay. of this, it, I think the failure of, um, uh, you know, security sector reforms uh, to, to, a, to a point where the military um, sees itself as not... Uh, involved in governance, but subjecting itself to the democratic institutions. Okay, <clears throat> let's move in. Let's uh, zoom in then on Mali. Musa, you were formerly special advisor to the current interim president, Simi Goita. He was involved in both the 2020 and the 2021 coups. Why did he do it? Uh, thank you so much. Uh, would not be able to answer to this question in place of Asimi Goita, but what I can say is uh, the coup did not just come out uh, from nowhere. Mm. Mali, as part of the civil society, I've been in part of the movement, uh, pushing for change, for governance, for security, for more than six months protest in the street in Bamako uh, against elected government of uh, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita. But Nothing happens, and uh, the impossibility for uh, political actors to find a joint position and also find a common ground for solution to these problems. 
which was political problems in the beginning. So is at the end of the day when the government was really weakened by the protest for this six months that the military jumped into the into the game and took over, and took over mm. the power. And it's the same moment many civilians as myself joined them because the call they said we ended up the civilians protest for better governments, governance and uh, combating corruption and security issues. And we joined the government to support it. But at the end of the day, I was obliged to, uh, to resign for many, uh, what I would call here, uh, personal reasons. But to justify, because uh, as my predecessor just mentioned, I just want to add another reason people don't take very closely, which is the slow disaster uh, we're going through in the Sahel region uh, due to climate change, people don't mention a lot. Mm. Because we've seen a shrinking of uh, livelihood spaces. Uh, places are no more green, no more water on the surface. So people are moving from one place to another place, I mean, by thousands for living spaces. And this creates a lot of tension between communities and create more instability and, and security uh, combating and, and so these are being putting in space as the incapacity and incapability of the elected government to solve the problems because mm. the problem is behind their shoulders and now we've seen the same military uh, which been taking as alternative to solve the problem facing the same challenges as happening and it's in only Niger, going to get Burkina, worse climate change isn't it Alexis, I want to bring you in at this point because, as uh, Musa suggested and showed us, that many of these coups have significant civilian support. Is this a case of these countries' democracies failing the people? I think there's definitely an element of people being frustrated with elected governments that they feel are not doing the work to provide for them in terms of security and in terms of affordability, in terms of cost of living. I think what we've seen, which hasn't been mentioned in great depth so far, is the lasting impact of supply chain shocks that we've seen with the back of the COVID pandemic and then as mm. well as that, the impact of the war in Ukraine. So that's pushed up the cost of living and so that's ramped up uh, food inflation, which has been galloping. Now, people are struggling with the cost of living. And then as well as that, then in certain situations, we've, as we've heard, there's been increased tension over fighting for arable land, dwindling resources because of climate change. And then as well as that, they've got Islamist insurgents. And because of that, they look at the elected governments and they just think these people are not delivering. And so they get frustrated. But one thing I would say is we should caution and see the difference between this popular support that we've seen and a popular uprising. In the case of both Niger and Gabon, these were opportunistic coups. These were essentially mm. palace coups, whereby with Niger, we had um, the head of the presidential guard who was about to be toppled, so he took his opportunity, and then he rode the wave of anti-French sentiment and the frustration, as I mentioned, at the elected government. And similarly in Gabon, there was popular frustration, but then the military took their opportunity and rode that wave of support to stay in power. So it's not so much that the popular, uh, the popularity of the, the people meant that they pushed for the coup, it's just that they didn't push against the putschists. Mm. Uh, Kabir, we've identified uh, increased costs of living, tensions over arable land, uh, poor security being key reasons that have created this perfect storm that you mentioned uh, for 
a coup. The big question then is, have any of these coup leaders delivered on any of these areas? Have they improved the lives for any of the people who live in these countries where they've taken over? Um, the reality is, unfortunately, no. And, and, and that, that kind of takes me to um, my co-discussant from Mali, who uh, cited, you know, the um, civil disorder as part, part of the reason. And, um, of course, uh, some of the other reasons given by the uh, coup, um, you know, coupist in, in Mali has been security. And where at the moment, especially with the departure of um, the United Nations mm. uh, mission there, and then the several other uh, bilateral support, uh, except for Russia um, in Mali, um, it's very difficult really to look back and say the promises made by the coupist have been achieved. Rather, um, the situation at the moment is one of dire consequences. And um, given the impact that it could have on the Sahel as a whole, and in fact, in, in Nigeria, where I am, the flow of weapons from the crisis and the conflict in Mali has impacted significantly countries within the Sahel, including Nigeria. So it is really almost impossible to look back and say all, any of the promises or the reasons for which the coupist have given has been um, achieved. And Musa, if, if we look at Mali again, particularly, we've seen promises of a transition to civilian rule by the middle of this year. Just recently, uh, the, government, the interim government has postponed that election that was supposed to happen due to so-called technical reasons. How fearful are you that you're not going to see those elections and that there will not be a transition to civilian rule anytime soon? Uh, thanks so much for this question. Uh, back in the first question, I think they've completely failed. That's to be very clear. Mm. They, the transition failed to bring the solution for uh, the problems people, a civilian, been fighting against the elected government, which is security, combating uh, corruption, and also uh, kind of stability for a local economy for, for, for everyone. So talking about the election, you know, the, Mali, the case is Mali is different than the other countries. Mali is not one person who did the coup. We have five colonels who did the coup. So each of them represent a kind of uh, porch of power in themselves. So that means who's going to be the president. And once this person is the president, who's going to be, uh, what's going to be the role of the others? So there is this suspicious, uh, I would say, among themselves, which creates a lot of tension and preventing them to find one person and to go to the election. And for sure, they may find way to organize the election in the coming days, but it's going to be really tough. And also the side of the civil society and the political actors to say to push towards the election. Because elections means one elected president with all the powers which is not the case actually and currently in, in the field in Mali. So mm. the, the, the other reason also is the funding, the money to fund the election. Where are we going to find this, this money? So my colleague from Niger just put his fingers on, on the point of the, the living of uh, the United Nations mission, a lot of bilateral uh, partners. have, But the Russian presence in Mali is not giving, supporting Mali in development or in economic status, no, they are selling the guns, they are selling weapons. That is it. And after that, what Russia is bringing to Mali's economy? Nothing. So that means not organizing the election also is the part of who's going to fund the election. 
and where we're going to find it, who's going to be the candidate, and for what reason, according the deal with ECOWAS and other international organizations. Musa, why did the Malian government get rid of the UN peacekeepers? Uh, because, you know, it's always a reason to find a responsible for the problems. That's what we have seen since uh, the French, as you mentioned, the anti-sentiment against French. Uh, the French, for sure, French did not did some mis big mistakes in the Sahel region, not just in Mali, but also putting fingers on others as the responsible of the problems we cannot solve has been part of the strategy of, uh, I would say, the prime minister and even the authorities of the transition in Mali. Mm -hmm. This keeps people away from the the very specific problems people have been fighting and waiting for result. Mm. So now the minister has been sent out saying after 10 years of presence, you could not solve this, you could not solve that, you could not solve this one. So now we are occupying our entire territory uh, according to the authorities. So why and what we cannot organize the election as we control the entire territory of Mali, as we talk about the sovereignty. And now after the MINUSMA, the next problem we're facing now is a tension, diplomatic tension between Mali and Algeria. Okay. Just, just before we get on to that, Alexis, I want to bring you in because I want to look a bit more about uh, the Francophone link that we are seeing running through so many of these countries that have faced coups, particularly Niger, Burkina Faso and Mali. All three of these countries have expelled French military from their borders. Why is there such a strong anti-French sentiment? I think ultimately it's the colonial hangover uh, from French rule and the fact that the French never really left. This idea of France's continued influence in its former colonies has led to frustration. So, for example, if you take Niger, um, France relied heavily on Niger's uranium as a big part of its energy mix for its nuclear energy policy. Now, people within Niger and other former French colonies began to feel that, for the reasons that we've already stated, their quality of life was not great. The cost of living mm. was going up, that they were struggling with poverty, they were struggling with Islamist insurgents, and yet they felt that France was benefiting because France was benefiting politically and that France had business interests in those countries. And then in terms of the troops, they just felt that the troops weren't delivering in terms of being on the front foot and being muscular enough to quell these insurgents who have ties to um, Islamic State and Al-Qaeda in a number of different countries. So they wanted someone to be more effective. So they just felt that they weren't getting anything. They felt that they were getting a raw deal. Um, and then as well as that, they felt that the, the French attitude towards them was paternalistic and in some circumstances maybe condescending, whereas the Russians, for example, have really uh, purposely set themselves up as being something of a partner instead. So when you look at the, the type of propaganda that the Russians have put out through the Wagner paramilitary group, um, they've always set themselves up as being partners and said that they're going to be effective. And they have been effective in terms of what they've done, for example, in the Central African Republic, which is why these military junta's have now looked to Russia as opposed to France. And, you know, we saw uh, with the example of Mali, for example, with the UN, there's also a conflation of issues because in some cases... 
the French and also the UN have seen themselves as peacekeepers and what they do is they deal with logistics. They don't necessarily fight aggressively mm. on the battlefields in a way that some of these other regimes would want. Whereas we've seen the Russians come in. Now, to be fair, the Russians have been accused of human rights abuses in many of these countries, but that is something that um, the local military rulers would want to see. They would want to be seen as being aggressive, and they wouldn't say that these were abuses of power or human rights abuses. They would just say that these people that were being killed are insurgents. OK, Kabir, what, what do you think of the, the Russian involvement and its moving in to fill the, the vacuum being left by France and others? Uh, I mean, the, the narrative coming from um, the countries where Russia's footprint is quite, um, you know, huge has been one of, um, you know, a, a disappointment, as it were. Uh, in other words, uh, while the military class and, to, in this instance, the government seem to find solace in the fact that Russia is stepping in to fill the vacancy, but then the civil society, um, to an extent the political class, and then um, the elites, uh, finding it quite um, strange that, um, you know, this, this government, as it were, have exited France, but then they are embracing Russia. And the mm. relationship, uh, which is quite obvious, is one of exploitation, where, for instance, Russia is more interested in the resources in these countries and is um, being paid by these resources and without any meaningful um, technological impact whether in terms of technology transfer or development of those resources locally, um, nothing of that. So there is a lot of resentment come, uh, from what we are monitoring within the country and not necessarily by, by, by the government. Now, added to that, unfortunately, is also um, you know, the conspiracy theory or the disinformation and misinformation that we're seeing, especially within the social media space that seem to be tearing at the influence of both Russia and then where uh, we're seeing a tough war between Russia and the United States, that is also playing into the hands of um, those who are not interested in um, the relate, um, seeing Russia's presence in, in the Sahel and in these countries uh, mm. bigger than what it is. Musa, let's look a little bit more locally and, and look at the regional power blocks. We've got ECOWAS. It sort of it loomed large uh, over all of these coups, but ultimately did nothing, could achieve nothing, could uh, not turn back the clock on any of these uh, military manoeuvres. But to what extent did it set up the stage for these takeovers to happen in the first place by letting leaders outstay their welcome in these various countries where they'd been given two terms and changed the constitution for three? To what extent do you think ACOAS and other regional blocs to blame? Yeah, uh, definitely this has been a very important point concerning the uh, regional uh, bodies, uh, as you mentioned, ECOWAS in, uh, in, in Western Africa. So the problem is the rule seems to support the ones who are in power, but not taking consideration the needs of the population and also the perspective and ambition of this generation. Because we have been so, like the growing been so rapidly, the ECOWAS materials and rules seems to not be following the expectations of the population in the in the community. Mm. You, you mentioned the anti-constitutional change of government by civilians, but nothing happens in terms, um, in the sense of, uh, of uh, ECOWAS. But when people, you know, protest and this lead to 
uh, military intervention. Now we have the, the materials and the laws speaking. So this has been a really weakening, weakening point of, of uh, ECOWAS. Where we, we are right now, it just playing its surviving games. That's why we've seen the way they pushed forward on Niger case, even threatening to send the military, the, the, the weakening of forces to Niger, and then they step back. Mm. This show like you are wrong. So now what is next? Next is to understand what the need of the population, not the, the need of the elected ones. Because the elected ones, that's what we even heard here in the creation of the, the alliance of uh, a state of Sahel, uh, Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso. And so people say uh, is the ECOWAS of elected president, not the, elect, the ECOWAS of population. So how we can design or uh, update the materials to need or to meet, for example, the countries that need Mali, Niger, and Burkina, or even in Chad, with facing horrible uh, uh, rebels and attacking, they do nothing to support these uh, countries to face these insecurity problems. So these are certain points of thinking, uh, food for brain for um, uh, ECOWAS to see the next okay. year as an opportunity to really uh, drone on that. Uh, Kabir, do you think ECOWAS will, will be examining itself in this way? Do you think it doesn't recognize the needs of the people? Um, I, I, I think it does um, to, an, to the extent that um, the three major organs within ECOWAS have reflected on almost all the developments within the sub-region and they've acted accordingly. They've, they've made mistakes, no doubt, and uh, my co-discussant mentioned the threat of a military intervention. However, what we don't speak uh, enough about is the fact that um, that threat of military intervention was a part of several other um, you know, interventions, including the economic sanction that is in currently in place. Even within that, I know there are discussions that um, some of what was done was not exactly right. So there is um, room for improvement. But I think it would be unfair to say that they are not listening to the needs of the people. The, the instruments are a bit blunt, and so there is a need to improve on the effectiveness of some of those instruments. Uh, but it would be really unfair to say they are not listening to the needs of, of the people. Okay. Uh, Alexis, do you have faith in ECOWAS and its future governance of the region? Um, I have faith in ECOWAS. I think they're trying to do the right thing. I think they've underestimated the importance of getting their message across in terms of communication. So I agree that they definitely have the interests of people at heart, but I think they're losing the propaganda war. Okay. Because those economic sanctions, for example, just mean that it's really hard for the people of Niger, and yet they haven't got across the fact that they care. And then really they made a number of missteps by being so muscular in the first instance and threatening the possibility of military intervention. Because now they look toothless because they didn't follow up on that. Many thanks to all our guests for joining us today. Alexis Akwejerum, Kabir Adamu and Musa Kondo. Thank you very much for joining us. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Victoria Gatenby, Abla Clark, Gemma Harris and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Deepak Pushkaran. The programme was edited by Anirban Sarkar, Lynn Nguyen, Nikin Oliei, David Enders and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening and tune in on Saturday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, we're looking at some of the stories that define 2023. 
from drones in Ukraine to the rise of ChatGPT. That's The Take from Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.